Hi there. You're listening to Lindisfarne Anglican Church's Sermon Podcast, a place where you can hear God's Word preached if you weren't able to join us at one of our services during the week. My prayer for you today is that as you listen to this message, you'd be challenged, encouraged, and equipped to live as a disciple of Christ in the world. May God richly bless you as you listen to this message today. An amusing and awkward dinner party that one was indeed. And uh, I show you that because what we have here uh, uh, for the most part of chapter 14 is uh, an awkward dinner party. Uh, A party where I think if you imagine Jesus takes on some of uh, uh, the role of that guy in the hat, obviously slightly different reasons, but he's not conforming to the the religious people of the day's expectations about how you know someone who's close to God is supposed to behave, let alone someone who may in fact be claiming to be God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus goes to dinner, we read in uh, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 14, at this Pharisee's house. And as he's there, he's been carefully watched, verse 1. Like a spy, carefully observing is is the idea behind that word careful. The, The Pharisee and his guests have invited Jesus to this dinner party, not to hang out and have a good time, but to continue to test and probe and catch Jesus out for not being religious enough and special enough and correct enough according to their way of doing things. And this is a dinner party where Jesus once again has the opportunity as he's had uh, in, in the last three or four chapters now, if not more, he has the opportunity to confront the hypocrisy of these Pharisees and uh, religious folk. He's at this dinner, it's on the Sabbath, and in front of him in verse 2 we read, it's this sick man with some sort of swelling condition. And so... Jesus poses a question to these guests who he must he who he knows have invited him there to test him and trick him and uh, and see why he's wrong. He asks them a question: Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And of course, deathly silence follows in verse four, and Jesus heals the man. And we. Well, I guess that deathly silence follows because this is not the first time that Jesus has been confronted with someone who is suffering and, and sick on the Sabbath uh, and whom he has extended the grace of God to. Uh, and uh, there's been controversy after controversy in Luke's Gospel up to this point about this. But uh, uh, perhaps uh, knowing what's happened every other time there's been a controversy, they've decided it's probably best to say nothing because otherwise we're going to get schooled. Jesus heals the man and then he says to the the people, if one of you has a child or an ox, verse 5, that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? Again, exposing the selfish hypocrisy of these people who don't want God's grace to extend to someone in great need but are happy to sort themselves out on the Sabbath. their children, their ox, their property. 
They can't respond as Jesus confronts them with that question. Deathly silence we read about again in verse 6. They had nothing to say. Which is really, as you, when you think about it, quite pathetic. Jesus, we've seen, has been demonstrating and teaching so clearly to these people about who the Messiah is, about what he would be like, and he's demonstrating with all these acts of uh, healing and his teaching that he is the one promised, and yet they remain stubbornly opposed to him. As one commentator reflects on this passage, he says, this passage confirms how strong sin's stubbornness can be. It also shows how even after warnings about judgment and its consequences, God graciously still gives evidence of his presence. His grace still reveals itself, but closed eyes can never see the evidence of God's power. These Pharisees in their uh, religious hypocrisy have closed their eyes off to what God is up to. They are so caught up in their sin of self-righteousness that even when God takes on flesh and walks around in front of them and performs miraculous signs, they cannot see. And yet, we've seen time and time again Jesus heal on the Sabbath again and again and again. Jesus teach again and again and again. The the offer of grace continues to present itself. They've got multiple chances. But they still continue to back themselves and their own way of doing things instead of trusting God and his grace. Their eyes are firmly closed. And there are plenty of people today, aren't there, with eyes closed to the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And what we see at first uh, here is that uh, when we encounter that, uh, we have to continue to offer God's grace. That when our friends or our neighbours who we're going to get to know uh, are are initially closed off to the, the offer of grace... Uh, we are to continue to offer it. These are the people God has placed in our lives. But of course, if their eyes are always closed, they'll never see. And so uh, this is a job that is too big for us. We need God's help. We need to pray. We need to pray for God to open blind eyes. So my challenge for you today, if you're not already doing this, is to think of three to five people who you know who have their eyes closed. Your neighbours, family, friends, workmates. Three to five people who you can start to pray for each day that God would open their eyes and that you would have another chance and another to to present the good grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ to them in both word and deed. And let's see what happens as we do that. 
Well, uh, Jesus is at this dinner party. Uh, he uh, is uh, he's healing this bloke, uh, and then he looks around at these uh, these hypocritical people that he's having dinner with, and, uh, and and he sees the fruit of their kind of proud, uh, hypocritical hearts in the way that they are behaving. So have a look at verse seven. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. Jesus notices how their pride in themselves and how good they are at, uh, at keeping the rules and being, uh, being righteous and being a good person according to the way their society worked. This has made them proud in the way they operate at dinner parties. These are successful religious people. That makes them important. And so in their pride and arrogance, they take the best seats at dinner parties. And of course, Jesus confronts them with the parable in verses 8 to 11 uh, uh, that, that reveals the problem with being proud, with having tickets on yourself, with thinking that you're more awesome than you really are. The Pharisees see themselves as super spiritual. God must love them. People must want to be them. But with this kind of pride, Jesus said, they are asking for a fall. Jesus says, much better to take an attitude of humility. To sit in lowly places and let the host promote you to a seat of honour. The context is a dinner party, but of course, the, 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 the true message is at how we approach God. Do we come to God proud? <laughs> I belong in heaven. Of course I do. Or do we come to God empty-handed? Please, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, much better to be humble and let the host promote you in his grace. Let him promote you to the seat of honour. When I read this parable, I often think about the dinner parties that Elisa and I sometimes go to uh, in an army context uh, where there can be major generals and sometimes the governor uh, and they're relatively small, 50 people there maybe. Uh, and I always think about what it would be like for me as the chaplain to uh, go and think, well, I answer to no one but God, I might sit front and centre tonight uh, only to have the regimental sergeant major quickly march me to the bottom end of the table and uh, summarily make me do marching or something the next day. Much better to be humble and to allow the, the, the host to promote you. Much better to come to God with humility and allow him to promote you through his son, Jesus. Jesus says followers of God ought to be humble, not proud. And in verses 12 to 14, he speaks about how a humble heart changes not only how you interact when you're a guest at the banquet, but it also overflows into how you operate as a host. That having humbled yourself, uh, you are now able to 
be a blessing to those who have been humbled. Jesus says, verses 12 to 14, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do, you invite your, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When life is lived in humility, then instead of taking the best seats at dinner parties, instead of using them as a way to get ahead, you seek to bless those who may never be able to repay you. Just as we can never repay God for his grace shown to us in Christ Jesus. And when we understand that, we're able to be a blessing to others. We've received such unmerited grace that we can't help but have that grace overflow to those who could never pay us back. Of course, verses 12 to 14... Uh, are a challenge, aren't they? They're a challenge for us. When we think about how we live our lives as hospitable Christians who have humbled ourselves before God and are seeking to demonstrate his love to others, when was the last time you practised hospitality in the way that Jesus talks about here? Where you gave a banquet for the the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. That is the outcasts for those who couldn't possibly pay you back. It's a challenge for us. And perhaps as we come into this neighbourhood time, maybe we're going to find that we have neighbours like that. Who could never pay us back, but whom we can be a great blessing to. Well, so far you'd have to say this dinner party is not going very well. It's pretty awkward. Uh, Jesus has come around. He's healed someone on the Sabbath. That's a bit shocking to these people. Now he's given a parable that's basically saying you're all sort of proud hypocrites. So, you know, you can imagine that that's making for good conversations. And it seems, it's hard to know exactly what happens here, but I I think what's going on in verse 15 is someone's trying to change the subject. Sort of go, well, this is awkward. Hey, Jesus, verse 15, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. Let's just like lift the uh, temperature of the room and try and talk about something that we can all agree is nice, like the blessed ones who are going to eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. And, well, the the mood probably lifts only for a moment. For Jesus then tells another parable. And this time, uh, in verses 15 to 24, he's telling a parable about a bunch of people who get invited to a big, big dinner party, but who, when the time comes for them to actually attend that party, they make a bunch of excuses why they can't come. And, of course, the guy who's hosting the party, the master, is pretty angry about this. That they've received this invitation but refused to show up. And so when he hears about this, uh, we read verse 21, Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Well, that sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? 
He's so angry at these people who've rejected the the invitation (coughs) that he says, go and invite the outcasts. Bring them in. And after doing this, uh, uh, the servant comes back and says, there's still more room. And so he's told, go out, verse 23, into the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And then we read that the master has this wonderful banquet, this beautiful celebration full of outcasts from the city and the country, from near and far. But there's one group who are most certainly not there, verse 24. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Those who were originally invited. And of course, what Jesus is doing here is saying to his guests, you're not going to be in the heavenly banquet. You've been invited. You're Jews. You're the the religious ones. Like, I know how religious you are. We all know how religious you are. We all know how much you like to say that you follow the right rules and you, you do the right things. You are the religious elite of the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel is God's chosen people. You are the ones who are longing for the coming of the Messiah. And yet, here he is at dinner with you and you're rejecting him. The Messiah has come and he's not conforming to their hypocritical, arrogant religion and they are refusing to come to the party. They are refusing to enter the kingdom of God because they are refusing to accept Jesus. To use language from last week, they're refusing to enter through the narrow door. And so Jesus in this parable is foreshadowing what will happen. That those who were invited but refused to come will, will miss out. And instead... The kingdom will fill up with those who respond with a yes to Jesus. The kingdom will be be filled with those who, in the current way of operating in first century Judaism, are are excluded from, from the things of God. The outcast will come in. But it wasn't just the, 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 the sick who were sort of religious outcasts in the day, but so too were those who were from further afield. Samaritans and Gentiles, those who weren't of Jewish origin, they will be brought into the kingdom too. This is a a, a parable for how, through Jesus, the kingdom of God will expand so that people like you and me can say yes to Jesus. God's kingdom fills up with those who see Jesus. For who he truly is. The one who brings the kingdom of God. It fills up with those who respond to Jesus with humility. I bring nothing. I need your salvation, Jesus. Well, our reading then shifts uh, to round out the chapter to uh, Jesus addressing a large crowd. Dinner's obviously over and now maybe it's the next day. Uh, He's uh, 
going to the next place and uh, there's a large crowd travelling with him. And Luke, I think, includes this at the end of this dinner party story because uh, having shown us that uh, we need to respond uh, humbly to Jesus, we need to admit our need for him and, and look to him with the eyes of faith, Uh, Jesus now turns to making sure we really understand what it is that that invitation is. What it is that the invitation to the great banquet is. Because yes, it'll be a great banquet. But it's not without its cost. In the uh, reading, uh, in the the parable that Jesus told uh, about the, the great banquet, we saw, didn't we, that... Uh, a whole bunch of things got in the way for these people to attend the banquet. One had just bought some new property in verse 18 that he wanted to go check out. One wanted to try out his new farm gear, his ox, in verse 19. Uh, Another wanted to focus on his marriage. And you think, these are all good things to do. But to put them before Jesus is to miss out on the kingdom. And so Jesus here reminds us all that following him involves keeping him front and centre, involves putting him above all other things. And he puts it very starkly. It's hard to read without kind of bristling a bit, isn't it? Verse 26, let me read it again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, this isn't like um, the, the, the scorned, nearly divorced husband saying, oh, well, that's easy. My, my wife's not very lovable anyway. Or, uh, you know, my son's a pain in the backside. I, of course, that's easy. Hate, yeah, I'll hate him and follow Jesus. No worries. That's not, the, that's not the idea here. No, this is talking about those things which we love deeply. Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even our own lives. If none of those things are doing it for you. Such a person cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying here, this is about what comes first. This is about primacy. All those other things can make a claim, can't they, to first spot in our heart of hearts. And when they do that, they become, not, uh, they become good things that have been over-elevated. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, I've got to stay first and foremost. And that's hard. It's hard to follow Jesus. It's hard because following Jesus is costly too. Look what he says in verse 27. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So not only does he need first place in your heart above all these other wonderful things, you also need to be prepared to count the cost of a hard life. Putting Jesus first when the world wants to ignore him at all costs, is tough. And particularly in this context, I think, putting Jesus first when your 
father or mother or wife or children or brothers or sisters, they turn on you because of your faith in Jesus. This is hard. This is not nice. This is a cost. And Jesus says we need to count the cost. We need to actually stop and think, do we think Jesus is worth the cost? And Jesus says we have to consider it. He talks about builders in verses 28 to 30 who count the cost before they build. Can I afford to do this? How much is it going to cost? They do a quote. And, you know, the people who are going to build, they, they, they figure out, can we do it? Or kings, he talks about in verses 31 to 32, who figure out how big each other's armies are and then figure out whether or not they should have a, have, have a battle or not. They count the costs before they act. And Jesus here spells it out, verse 33, in the same way, those of you who, are not, who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. True disciples count the costs. True disciples are willing to put Jesus first and deal with the consequences. If you're not willing to count the cost, then you're not a true disciple and you'll be thrown out like unsalty salt, Jesus says in verses 34 to 35. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Well, here it is. Here's what I think we need to hear today. As we consider this story of a, a, an awkward dinner party with a couple of parables and then a story about counting the cost to follow Jesus, we're being challenged, I think, to consider what is first and foremost in our heart of hearts. Because there's only going to be one way that we can be the kind of disciple that Jesus wants us to be. And that's by getting our hearts right. The Pharisees are a great example of what wrong-hearted religiosity looks like. They let their hearts be full of pride and arrogance. They love their status. And they ended up loving these things more than God himself. Jesus says, it's not just those things, but it can be family, work, friends. There's all sorts of things that can come in and crowd Jesus to the side or out of our lives altogether. Let's heed heed the warning and make Jesus number one in our hearts. Above ourselves, above our status above our families, above, yes, even our own life. If we ask Jesus to be number one in our hearts, then we will have no trouble counting the cost. And if Jesus is number one in our hearts, then we will be able to live the kind of humble, cross-carrying life he lived as he lives in us by his Spirit. Or whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Amen. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to this message today. I hope you're encouraged by God 
as he spoke to you by his Holy Spirit. Please head to our website if you'd like more information about our church, www.lindisfarneanglican.org.au or like us on Facebook by searching Lindisfarne Anglican. We are a church for Lindisfarne, making disciples of Jesus. God bless.